to some it, uh, it is a ministry headed for heaven. Others, it is Nineveh, <laughs> depending on uh, depending on your background. Um, Stu mentioned something in uh, from First John. He was quoting First John three when uh, the apostle wrote, uh, "Let us not love with uh, words or tongue, but with actions and in truth." And that language for John. Uh, Maybe at times in the church has been um, something we've just kind of glossed over, but I don't know of a time where um, maybe um, instruction more important and urgent for us in the church to begin to adopt and to think more critically upon. Because uh, what's happening in our culture is uh, the gospel is losing a voice, not because of... Uh, surpassing truth, but because there are not lives exhibiting and flowing out of the power of the gospel. Uh, there was an article in the Atlantic uh, Weekly last year uh, where an atheist uh, high school student was interviewed. He said, Christianity is something that if you really believed, it would change your life and you would want to be a part of changing the lives of others. I haven't seen too much of that. And what's fair, I think, for us to consider this morning is that um, the gospel that we have, especially maybe the historic gospel passed down to us uh, through our confessions and creeds and our great systematic doctrines, um, is this profound explanation of truth and who God is and how we know him and how we're connected to him. But if we're honest, um, those doctrines rarely show up in our lives for change and transformation in the ways and the depth to which we want to experience them. And the ways that the, the church has profoundly thought about this in the past is that the way doctrine and the way truth comes up to our lives is through the discipline of prayer. And um, when you say that out loud in a place like this uh, in 2018, there's almost an immediate like sigh of, like, I've tried that. And really, what we're missing... Um, is that we're doing prayer without the work of meditation. And we're not coupling those two things together. And um, what has happened, what's been so powerful in the history of the church for making the gospel stick and come out in your life is the work of prayer through and with meditation. And so if you will turn to Psalm 1 that we're going to look at this morning. And this is a unique psalm because uh, if you consider the whole Psalter, uh, it's 150... Uh, psalms, 149 of them are prayers, except this first one. And most uh, authors and scholars have noted that this is actually not a prayer, it's a reflection on how we ought to go into prayer. And so what it, what's often thought is that Psalm 1 is sort of a preface, an introduction to the Psalter, how we ought to go into the rest of the Psalter through this disposition and this practice. And the author writes this, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask that he would meet us in it. Lord, as we reflect on your word, uh, would you teach us? Would your spirit come and open our eyes and hearts that we may see more of your glory? Uh, find Jesus more beautiful, that we may uh, delight in our salvation and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I want to do with you this morning is uh, walk through uh, this idea of meditation to help the gospel that you may know intellectually stick down in your soul in a way that it may come out in your life. And so uh, let's walk through it this way, through this psalm. Let's look at the promise of meditation, uh, the object of meditation, uh, the method of meditation, and, and fourth, the motivation for meditation. Okay? So first, uh, the promise of meditation. Look what it says uh, in verse 1 and 2 and, uh, and 5 and 6. This is sort of the brackets of the psalm. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, uh, nor stands in the seat way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Uh, and then in verse 5, uh, therefore the wicked will not uh, stand in judgment, or be in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked will not perish. So throughout the psalm, we're given this sort of um, two categories of people, the wicked and the righteous. And uh, almost immediately to our uh, 2018 ears, what that sounds like is uh, maybe people who uh, follow Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus. Um, that we would sort of think of that as a soteric category those who recognize God, those who do not recognize God. But that's not really the category that the psalmist has in mind. The psalmist has in mind that the, the righteous are those who meditate on God's law. It's not those who think God is real. It's not even those who have dedicated their life to Christ. It's those who are living out this practice. And the wicked are all of those who don't live out this practice. So it's not really sort of a belief category. It's more of a practice category between these two types of people. And the point is this, is that the idea of meditation, according to Psalm 1, is not something that uh, really dedicated Christians do. It's not something pastors just do. He has in view that this is the normal pattern of faith. Uh, R.C. Sproul commenting on this psalm says, The mark of a godly person is not that they go to church day and night, not that they sing day and night, or even that they witness day and night. But the mark of a Christian and a godly person is that one who meditates on God's law day and night. Here's one definition of meditation to sort of kind of get your mind and heart flowing in on this. One author put it this way. Meditation is the act of training and feeding the mind in such a way that it descends into the heart until the truth catches fire in your whole life. It is the patient practice of getting the roots of your heart down into God so that life can throw you all sorts of things and you can remain the same. Now, look, I'll show you what I mean by this promise and how it comes out. Look back in verse uh, 3. He says this, The person who meditates on God's law, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. So here's a, a great illustration and a, a vision for us to think about with this, with this promise of meditation. Those who do this, those who, who dive their hearts so deep into God 
that the truths of God are, are planted deep in their life are like a tree planted by a stream of water. Now, this is uh, incredibly um, practical for us in Southern California where we have trees never but planted by anything but sprinklers. And so all our vegetation here is what is dependent on circumstances. It's dependent on us doing something. It's dependent on uh, the weather. If, if the weather's going well, we have lots of vegetation. If we have, no, if we have bad weather, we have a lack of vegetation. But it's saying this. If, if you begin to meditate on God's law, and you begin to dive your heart so deep into his word, you will be somebody whose life is not dependent on external circumstances for you to have joy, peace, contentment, and fruit in your life. But you will be somebody who is like a, a tree planted by a stream of water. And that means that stream of water is always there. It is always feeding your life. It is always feeding your soul. Now, counter that with how we typically live life. How's your week going? How do we answer that question? We usually answer that question conditional upon how circumstances are going in our life. It's been a really hard week. This has been challenging. I've had a hard time finding joy. Why? Because of this at work or this in my relationships. Now, the psalmist is not minimizing the challenge and the difficulty of any of the circumstances in our life. But how we typically find peace, contentment, and joy is through the, the volatility of our circumstances. And he's giving us another option, saying you can begin to find life, contentment, and joy, not circumstantially, but in something that never, ever changes, and that's God's word. Uh, it, it looks like this. It looks like getting God's love so deep in your life, so deep in your heart, that someone can reject you, and it doesn't ruin your day. It looks like getting God's sovereignty so deep within your soul, so counterintuitive to who you are, that when circumstances you were not expecting in life come, you do not go down the, the slippery slope of anxiety immediately. But you begin to think not in light of your circumstances, but in light of the truth that's been planted deep in your soul. I mean, to make this even more uh, deeper, look at verse 4 to how he gives us the negative side of this. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So he's saying this, if you, don't, if you don't meditate on God's law, even if you call God real, even if you would say Jesus is uh, a, a truly historic resurrected Lord, if you don't actively do something to get that down into your soul and to make his forgiveness deep within your heart, you will be somebody who's like wind, chaff in the wind. That the most, every circumstance that comes up in your life, you'll, you'll be steady, you'll be forgiven, you'll be content until circumstances come up that, and they will blow you away with the simplest of whispers. And all that peace and all that contentment that you sing about, that you read about in books, if it's not planted down deep through the practice of meditation, your life will not look like you even believe that. And pastorally, I'll just say this. Um, some of us, uh, some of us are older than others in this room, and you have been through way more life than me, way more challenges relationally, vocationally, spiritually than me. Um, 
And you can tell us in this room that there are emotions that some of us are going to go through that we can't just show up for and hope it's going to go okay. And it's really hard in life to build the plane in the air. And you can do the hard work either now and begin to get the love of Jesus and the sovereignty of Jesus and the promised hope of Jesus so deep in your soul that when those emotions inevitably we will face in life come out, that it doesn't feel like a marathon that we didn't train for. I'll give you a picture of this. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know who he was, he was a pastor in um, the World War II in Nazi Germany, and he was um, his life was characterized by resisting the Nazi regime, and so he was thrown in jail. And when the last attempt on Hitler's life failed, uh, he said this, I have thrown myself completely into the arms of God, knowing my death is coming. There is now nothing to fear in life. William Damon, um, commenting and writing on uh, Bonhoeffer's experience at the end of his life, said at the last few days, this is him, Bonhoeffer possessed the calm of the mystic from the experience of the ultimate. As his execution drew near, he amanted calm, was cheerful, and ready to respond to a joke, apparently carefree. Do you know what Psalm 1 is, is promising you? It's promising that that can be you if you will begin to meditate on God's law day and night. It's saying that could be you to the most dramatic, horrific of suffering circumstances that you're about to walk into, that you could have a soul that was so driven by the ultimate and so planted deeply in the love of God that you could be even ready to respond to a joke. That's the promise of meditation. Secondly, though, let's look at the object of meditation. Uh, the author says this in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Law of the Lord is an Old Testament idiom of just saying scripture, of telling us of God's word. And the point is this immediately. Um, sometimes this word meditation uh, doesn't show up at all in our churches. You, you rarely read about it in evangelical writing. And we honestly have a uh, Western fear of this because it's so truncated with Eastern philosophy and New Age thinking. But Eastern philosophy and New Age thinking, meditation happens by you emptying your mind, by you clearing your mind, by you not thinking about anything. But this idea, the Psalm 1 view of meditation, is not happening by emptying your mind, but by filling your mind with something. It says meditation comes from somebody whose delight is in the law of the Lord and someone who's doing this day and night. Uh, let me give you two quotes, one old, one new, uh, expressing this better than I can say it. This is Thomas Watson. He says, we're, if we are to learn to commune with our Lord, it must be done with the discipline of prayer and meditation. The Hebrew word for meditate means to be inordinately intense in the mind. But the biblical authors never mention such a practice apart from the only object with which it must be done, namely the scriptures. For meditation without reading is wrong and bound to error, but reading without meditation is barren and fruitless. Put a little bit more modernly, listen to Eugene Peterson. He says, because we learned language so early in our lives, we have no memory of the process. 
and would therefore imagine that it was we who took the initiative to learn how to speak. However, that is not the case. Language is spoken into us. We learn language not only as we are spoken to, we are plunged, we are plunged at birth into a sea of language. Then we slowly, syllable by syllable, we acquire the capacity to answer mama, papa, bottle, blanket, yes and no. And none of these words was a first word. All speech is answering speech. We were all spoken to before we spoke. We must therefore never cease plunging ourselves into the scriptures and letting the overwhelming previousness of God's speech for our prayers and thoughts. Here he's saying, he's saying, listen, as a kid, do you know how you learn to speak? Your parents spoke into you and truly your vocabulary was often a reflection of what they spoke into you or what the TV was for my children's sake. Um, the TV is speaking into their face and, and that we're repeating what we hear and what we say. And so he's saying, therefore, it is absolutely necessary that you let God speak into your language, that you, therefore, may have a vocabulary and a heart and a mind that begins to reflect this very thing. And, and practically, I'll say this. Here's why we must meditate on God's law. Because truthfully, we're thinking of the Puritans used to say, if you want to know who you are and you want to know the, heart, the essence of your soul, what do you fantasize about when there's nothing else to think about? And there's a lot to think about that. But one thing is true is that we are always thinking and filling our heart with something. But if you only go to fantasy, if you only sort of meditate maybe on an imaginary world, on good, positive thoughts, that will never prepare you for pain and suffering that's coming in life. But you will also not begin to pray to a God who is real. And if you don't let the God of the Bible speak into your soul and speak into your heart and speak into your vocabulary, you will, by default, create a God who works for you. Maybe a God who doesn't contradict you. Maybe a God who always agrees with your political ideas. Maybe a God who always agrees with your financial ideas. Maybe a God who always agrees with your family ideas. Maybe your, your leisurely ideas. And really, then we begin to meditate on a God who is not real, but is only a fixture of our imagination and doesn't then end up being a God who we want to worship, but who worships us. And so what meditation is, is beginning to fill your mind with, with the one true God that you may be prepared for life and you may find him more profound and more beautiful than even your own fantasies and desires. And he says this, that we must do this, this pattern day and night. Now, there's a lot of um, biblical poetry found in the Psalms that we ought to take metaphorically, that we ought to take illustratively. We probably ought to take this literally. And the pattern here given for us is not something that we ought to uh, brush aside as just contextual, but actually think is very practical. That the way to begin to do the object of meditation is that this ought, probably ought to be the beginning of your day and the end of your day. And there's probably never been an easier time for me to say this than 2018, because let's just be honest. How many of you begin your day this way? By pulling out your iPhone and scrolling through it and looking at apps and looking at text messages 
And then you get in the bed at night, and the last thing you do is you look at that phone, and you maybe scroll through it one last time, and that that's the pattern of our day, to wake up and do this and to go to sleep and do this. Here's what that... The, I, I struggle with this too. So this is not like me condemning and all you people. This is us together. But when we open those phones, here's what we're doing. We're looking at how much we have to do in the world, how far behind we are in the world, all the demands and burdens of the world that are upon us, how we're not living up to those burdens and demands, and what's required of us. And we're looking at that the first thing in the morning and the last thing of going to bed. And here I guarantee you that object of that material is going deep into your soul. And we're in a culture that is incredibly anxious, always stressed out, telling everyone we're too busy, we're too busy, we're too busy, we're too busy. Do you know where that's coming from? It's coming from our morning and evening meditation on something that looks at you and says, you're not enough, get busy. And what the psalmist is pleading with you is to, do, is to change that, to go from morning and evening, not to something that says what you're not, but to something that tells you who you are. And not what's required of you, but what Christ has already done for you. And not how far behind you are, but how sufficient Christ is. And saying, morning and evening, plunge that deeply into your soul. Because something's going in. Make it a message and a reality that goes in that will not make you like chaff in the wind, but will make you like a tree planted by streams of water. That's the object. So thirdly, let's look at the, me- the method of meditation. Um, again, he says in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. So if we're given a picture of meditation, and we're told that we need to use some scripture, what do we actually do? Well, we're given these two categories. Uh, he meditates unto delight. And I got this uh, from another pastor, but he's got this um, thing that he got from an essay that Martin Luther wrote. He says, here's a good way that you can practically begin to meditate unto delight. You think out, you dig in, and you talk up. So if you want something practical to take away from this message this morning, these, these three things, think out, dig in, and talk up. Think out. Here's what it means. That meditation, like uh, Thomas Watson said, is an intense, inordinate mind activity. So what we ought to do is that we ought to take the scriptures, and we ought to ponder and we ought to give specific effort and focus. And we ought to look at texts and say, what is this promising me? What is this teaching me? What is this telling me about Jesus? What is this telling me about myself? What is this telling me about the character of God? And you have to do some real thinking on this. You've got to do some, maybe some academic work. Um, some you know, uh, high school English parsing out work. Uh, but looking out and dragging out something that tells you about who God is, about who you are, about what he's done for us. But then secondly, once we think out, we dig in. And what it means to dig in is then we take that thing that's true about God. We take this thing that's true about what Jesus has done for us. And we say, what might it mean for my life if I lived like this was true? How, do, how does this characteristic about God affect my practical daily life? How do I think about my job differently if this is what's true about God? How do I think about my marriage differently if this is what's true about myself? 
or what's true about Jesus. And, and we ought to do that, the author says, until we delight. And the Hebrew word for delight is, it could be translated to feel rich. That is, I mean, it's often translated in the Old Testament to count up your money. And so what delight is, is a consuming, uh, it's a consuming feeling, really. It's a consuming conviction that something is more real and something is more true than something else. Because we, let's consider this for, for 20 seconds, feeling rich in Southern California. How many of you feel really rich? I mean, compared to people in uh, Bel Air, not really. But do you know, I mean, anybody in here who has an income more of more than $25,000 a year is richer than 92% of the world. And all that statistics tell us is that feeling rich is, a, is actually a relative reality. It's, also, it's, it's dependent on who you're counting to. And what a Christian should do is, yes, in some ways you may not feel rich in this world. But what meditation ought to do is get your heart to the point where you feel relative to the circumstances in this world. You are always rich because of the realities and the truths of God that can be put into your soul. And those, what happens with meditation under the light is when those realities get so deep that you feel rich in this world, then you can begin to go face life. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when I was in college, um, I, I went to go study abroad in Johannesburg, South Africa uh, for uh, a couple months. And this was all pre-cell phone it was really pre-internet access, so there was email, but you just no one had PCs. Um, so the way my, my wife and I were dating, that we communicated, is we just wrote letters, and uh, she would send me letters, and I would write her letters back and forth, and it was basically the only communication we had when we were dating for six months. And I would get these letters from her, and she would just say things like, "I miss you," "I think about you all the time," "I went and did this," "I wish you were here." Uh, please come back. I adore you. I can't wait to hug you. I can't wait to hold your hand. I can't wait to kiss you. And you know, as a uh, as a 21 year old boy, you, you don't just kind of read that and put it down. I mean, I would read that, and then the the, the lines that she really delighted me. I read it over and over again. I probably read it three or four times. I would take them with me during the day. And here's what I discovered about myself. I had a very little need for other people's affections those mornings that I did that. I had very little need uh, to have affirmation out in the world. I struggled very little with volatile circumstances in that world. Why? Because I knew there was somebody in this world who adored me, who missed me, who was thinking about me all the time. Here's what I was doing. I was meditating on my wife's letters until they delighted me. And I went out in the world in that delight. And what the psalmist is telling us to do is that every day we ought to go out into the world until we ought not to go out into the world until we are so delighted in God's love for us and in his sovereignty over us and in his care and in his promised kingdom that the cares of this world ought to fall off us like fall off us like water on a duck. But we, we talk up, we think out, we dig in, and then thirdly, lastly, 
We talk up. And what, what this just means is uh, you have to speak out the truths um, back to God that are beginning to lighten you. You know, one thing that's true about life is that um, sometimes it's not true until you say it out loud. Any of you who've ever struggled with addiction uh, will, will, will know this. You can think to yourself you're an addict. Um, you can even come to that conclusion. But until you voice that to somebody else, it's not real. And these truths that we want to get into our heart, Martin Luther says in his essay on meditation, he says, until you talk it out loud to God, it's really not real to you. And so this is, this is, what, this is how we, we begin to change. When these truths begin to delight in your soul and you talk them out loud to others and to God, and you don't just know He forgives you, but you say it out loud, I am forgiven by you, Jesus. Therefore, I am accepted and I am loved, which means the need for affirmation, the need for acceptance in this world will not control me today as much as your love and your acceptance and your forgiveness controls me. And that's thinking out, digging out, digging in and talking up. That's the method of meditation. Lastly and quickly, how do we do this? What's the motivation? Look in verse 6. He says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we're coming back to this, the way of the righteous and the wicked. That it's not just that you just go do this. Verse 1, it tells us, blessed is the man who does this. We, we can't just go do this with one way, because in verse 6, there's a distinct way to do this. There's a way of the wicked and there's a way of the righteous. And the way of the wicked in meditation is that you would begin to do all these things in hopes that God will bless you. And if you, if you go out into this practice, reading God's word and thinking on it in hopes that he will love you, in hopes that he will give you a life, this practice will crush you. Because what will happen is everything that ha happens hard in your life will feel like a double trial, the Puritans used to say. Because not only will a hard thing be happening in your life, you'll be wondering, have I not been meditating enough? Have I not been praying enough? Is God letting this thing happen in my life because I haven't been faithful enough? But the way of the righteous is not to do any of these things so that you get God's blessing. It's to do them because you already have God's blessing. That is, you don't meditate to get blessed. You, you meditate because you already are blessed. And how do you know you're blessed? Because we have somebody who never walked in the counsel of the wicked who never sat in the way of sinners, who never sat in the sea of scoffers, but his delight was always in the law of the Lord, and that was Jesus. Hebrews 10, it says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You know, we have 180, excuse me, we have 1,800 verses of Jesus speaking in the Gospels. 180 of them are just scripture quotations. 10% of everything that we have of him saying is just quoting scripture. Because Jesus was so bathed in scripture. He was so uh, dived into the heart of God. that That's why on the cross, when he was squeezed, scripture came out. And he just quoted it because what was in him? Was a tree planted by a stream of water. And so that in the most suffering of moments... What came out were the promises and realities of God. 
And so what, this is what will plant your soul deep into the heart of God, is when you meditate on Him being the hero and the Savior and the King of your Scripture. I'll give you an example of this at the close. In Luke 24, we're given this picture uh, after Jesus has been risen from the dead where uh, there's these people walking along the road, on the road to Emmaus, and they're sad and depressed because uh, Jesus has died. And something that's sort of lost on us in the church is that when, when Jesus died on the cross, no one sat there and was like, this is amazing. God is saving the world right now. How exciting. Everyone left dejected. Everyone left thinking they'd thrown their eggs in the wrong basket, that this was a waste, that this was a bad idea. And so these people are walking along sad and dejected. And Jesus, I mean, almost like playing a joke on them, comes walking along to them. They have no idea who he is. And he says, why are you so sad? And they say, like, what do you mean? How do you not know? How do you not understand why we're so sad? And he says, like, tell me. And they, they say, this person, Jesus, who we thought was going to be the king, was killed. And it's over. And Jesus says, you fools. Don't you know that Scripture said this was going to happen? And they're like, what are you talking about? And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he opened up the Scriptures and showed them concerning himself. And he, which is, This is what it means. Jesus sat down with these people, and he meditated with them. And he says, don't you see that this whole story of Moses was pointing, was pointing to me? Don't you see that this story of David, it was all, it was all pointing that I was going to conquer the, the giant of giants on the, with death and sin on the cross. Don't you understand that all these psalms pointed to me? Don't you understand that all of Isaiah's prophets, excuse me, all of Isaiah's prophecy, talking about the day of the Lord, the way of the Lord, the path that will be straight, that was paved by me. And he went through one by one by one by one and showed them how he was the central one and they meditated on it. And then he leaves. And they turn to one another and they say, did, did that just really happen? And then they say, did not our hearts delight amongst us when he meditated with us on the scriptures? Life is coming. Psalm 1 promises you this. If you will do that, and you won't just hear Jesus talked about, but you will take that Jesus, and you will put it in your soul more profoundly than you put your iPhone in every morning and every night, then I guarantee you, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, you will not be controlled by your weekly circumstances to the degree that you are right now. But you can be set free and take your life back through this practice, knowing not that he will love you because you do that, but because you are loved and that gospel is available for you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, um, we don't just want to know you're real. We want to experience reality in the most uh, pressing of life circumstances um, so that we can be a tree planted by streams of water. We are, we are weary of being chaff in the wind where we know you're real and then tomorrow we are so caught up in the cares of this world it's as if you're not alive. Lord, would you by the power of your spirit uh, help us as a community to begin 
to practice this, this practice of filling our hearts morning and evening with your, with your love. Would you help us as a community? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's close our time by standing and singing hymn 94, How Firm a Foundation.